Pastor Mai. Good afternoon and welcome to Perspective on Manx Radio. I'm Dolan Mercer. This week was an important one for the island's Attorney General, who was thrust under the spotlight of a Timwald committee in public. Currently in that role is John Quinn QC. The Constitutional and Legal Affairs and Justice Committee is looking at a range of topics relating to Her Majesty's Attorney General, including the relationship he has between the government, governor and Tinwald. The work forms part of the committee's scrutiny remit, also focusing on issues which affect the island, relating to the administration of justice, legal services and constitutional issues. Jane Poole-Wilson, MLC, is chair and she's joined by MHK's Laurie Hooper and Chris Robertshaw. The trio spoke to Mr Quinn on Monday in the Legislative Council Chamber. Let's listen in to some extracts of that oral evidence session, looking at the Attorney-General's role and function. In a lengthy opening address, Mr Quinn acknowledged that equal or similar roles in other jurisdictions have also come under scrutiny in recent years, and he said he wasn't against such scrutiny here. It may be helpful for the record if I make my position clear with reference to any reform of the role of Her Majesty's Attorney-General. Although it is not in my gift to change my role, I should welcome changes considered necessary to improve things, and I think it's entirely appropriate that this committee consider and perhaps make recommendations as to what, if any, reforms may be considered necessary. Aspects of the role of the Attorney-General was, I understand, last considered in any detail by Timwall Court at its sitting in June 2005, when it debated the report by the Council of Ministers of May 2005 entitled Appointment of Her Majesty's Attorney-General. Rather than delve into that debate or the history of the role of the Attorney-General in the island, which can make for interesting reading, I invite the committee to consider that 2005 report which I suggest succinctly sets out what was then, and very much still is, a realistic description of the role of the Attorney-General. To assist members of the public who may be listening today, um, it might be helpful if I read briefly from that report, and I'm referring to page 2, chapter 2, the present appointment procedure and duties of Her Majesty's Attorney-General. It reads... The position of Her Majesty's Attorney-General of the Isle of Man has traditionally been a Crown appointment, with His or Her Majesty acting on the advice of the Secretary of State after consultation with the Island's Lieutenant Governor, who will in turn have consulted as he thought fit within the island. The present Attorney-General was appointed in this way, and on that occasion the Lieutenant Governor consulted the Chief Minister, Mr President and Speaker, amongst others. The letters patent appointing the Attorney-General traditionally provided for the Secretary of State to have the power to make regulations governing the role. In 1979, the Home Office wrote to the then Lieutenant Governor in the following terms. We've been looking again recently at the very long-standing problem of the regulations made by the Secretary of State for your Attorney-General with a view to updating and or removing them altogether when the occupant of the post next changes. We find that we are inclined to think that they may have outlived their usefulness. Provision for regulations has been made in the letters patent appointing the Attorney-General since 1866. Regulations were first made in 1898, when the post was a part-time one, and they have since been twice revised, in 1921 and in 1945. The Attorney-General has, of course, been a full-time Crown Officer for well over 50 years now, and there does not seem to be, or never has been, any doubt over his role. The question of who appoints the Attorney-General has been the subject of previous Select Committee and Standing Committee reports on the island over the years. In summary, and leaving aside the interesting history of the role, the essential characteristic of the role of the Attorney-General as Crown Officer, which includes now the the Solicitor General, is the ability for Her Majesty to appear before her own courts to support her before the court. And her interest is clearly that of maintaining the rule of law in the island. I'm asked what I might personally suggest by way of reform to the role of the Attorney General. A report by Stephen Waller 
in 2002 on the functioning of the Attorney General's Chambers recommended a change in relationship between the Director of Prosecutions and the Attorney General to emphasise the separation of the prosecution function from the Executive. As you are aware, all prosecutions are presently brought in the name of Her Majesty's Attorney General as Crown Officer. And although in the Isle of Man the Attorney General is neither a politician nor a political appointee, and he or she is not part of government, he or she is nevertheless also uh, responsible as the legal advisor to the Council of Ministers and Timwald, which will have considered, and I agree, creates the perception of a very close relationship. Mm-hmm. In the world where perception of independence and impartiality is of increasing importance, which I acknowledge, I consider and agree with Weller's recommendation that the time has come, to use his words, to underline the fact of appropriate separation in the Isle of Man by requiring prosecutions to be brought in the name of the Director of Prosecutions. The Government would retain its responsibilities for criminal justice policy for the infrastructure of the criminal justice system including prosecution arrangements. Relationship between the Attorney General and the Director of Prosecutions would become, as in the United Kingdom, one of superintendents. The important change would be that responsibility for individual prosecution decisions would rest with the Director of Prosecutions, who would be accountable to the Attorney General and through the Attorney General to Timwald for delivering an efficient and effective prosecution service which commanded public confidence. The recommendations of Waller in his report were accepted by the Council of Ministers and I can say that in February 2016 I approached and received the approval in principle to such a change from the then Minister of the Department of Home Affairs to that proposal, but the Department has not as yet progressed this matter. Perhaps if I could pick up on the last piece of your statement about the separation of the decision-making around prosecutions from the Attorney-General. I note that you say that this was taken to the Council of Ministers in order to progress, but hasn't been progressed so far. Sorry, Madam Chair, it was the Department of Home Affairs Minister who agreed. It hasn't gone to the Council of Ministers, but they approved the Wooler Report report. recommendations. How do you see the idea of a Minister for Justice once appointed being relevant to not only the issue of how the prosecution's function sits, but perhaps other aspects of the Attorney General's role? Uh, as Madam Chair, as I'm sure you appreciate, the Attorney General has many statutory functions. Um, all of those functions are as a result of a statutory provision having been made. I haven't actually given thoughts to which of those could conveniently be transferred to a Minister um, of Justice, simply because that is a matter for Timwall to decide. The principle uh, which I no, which no doubt Timwall had in mind when prescribing functions to the attorney, and I'm leaving aside the prosecution function at the moment, is clear that it must have considered, perhaps because of the independence of the attorney, perhaps because his function uh, is very much to look to the public interest that the decision-making with reference to each of those specific items were matters which ought to be appropriately dealt with by someone independent from the politicians, we put it that way. Just if I could come back to the specifically the prosecution's issue, because in the current prosecution code yes. um, at paragraph 26, uh, is set out the power of the Attorney General to overrule a prosecutor's decision. Yeah. So I suppose exploring that particular power for a minute, if measures are taken to make sure that prosecutions are brought in the name of the um, Director of Prosecutions and not the Attorney General, yeah. how would you see the power of the Attorney General to overrule a prosecutor's decision uh, playing out? and? How would that fit with uh, the Attorney General perhaps having a, a superintendent role over the effectiveness of the prosecution division? In other words, is, is that an area where it would be more appropriate for perhaps a Minister of Justice to look at the effectiveness and efficiency of the prosecution division 
if there is still to be a, a power of the Attorney General to overrule the Director of Prosecution's decision to prosecute or not prosecute. Right, Madam Chair, I haven't looked at the actual provisions in the UK as to what um, responsibilities, duties the attorney has in the context of his superintendence of um, the prosecution service. I can't imagine that he would necessarily have any role other than to advise the director of prosecution um, that perhaps in the public interest he ought to think again with reference to a prosecution which is being taken. Whether or not that is the provision in the UK, I, I must say, Madam Chair, I, I do not know. Uh, but I, can, I can't imagine that there would be any political interference with the direct prosecutions. We take that as the analogy as to whether or not a specific prosecution should be withdrawn. I suppose that comes back to the express point that Wooler was making, though, wasn't it, about not not whether there's actual interference, but it's a perception yes. of interference. So this, this is back to while the Attorney General sits as the legal advisor to the Council of Ministers, what is the boundaries or what should the boundaries be for the Attorney General's role when it comes to supervision of the prosecution division or indeed the power to overrule an individual decision of the Director of Prosecution. Yes. I haven't given consideration to that. I haven't got to the happy space yet where I've had to. So if I can ask then just on that point, it's the Director of Prosecutions that makes the decision on every single prosecution as to whether or not to proceed. Whilst you do have the power to overrule those decisions, should you choose, how often do you tend to exercise that power? Is it, how, how involved are you in that operational function, I think is what I'm asking. Well, certainly I could say I have overruled decisions to prosecute. I think that's the first point to make. That is more often or not by reference to the uh, evidence which is put before me, because I think you will appreciate there are two prosecution elements which have got to be considered. First, the evidential taste test and then the public interest test. Um, in the public interest test, clearly matters such as the cost of prosecution is what a factor. And if I'm not very happy with reference to the evidence and it's been sent back perhaps at my behest for further evidence and I haven't been able to produce it to a satisfactory state, then there have been cases where I have instructed the director not to prosecute. But they're few and far between, if I, if I should say. Just picking up on that point a little bit more, uh, when you do exercise this power, is it predominantly that you disagree with the Director of Prosecutions on an evidential basis, or is it more often or not the public interest test that you have a, a different perspective on than he does? The majority of cases will be the evident evidence, um, okay. but there have been occasions in the public interest where I've stepped in. Okay. Uh, and what, and what can I just say, it? Uh, I'm just trying to call to mind the last time I did it was basically because I was looking and considering a very vulnerable um, defendant, uh, and I didn't consider it was in the public interest for that defendant to be prosecuted. Okay. What's the, the process that you go through with this? Because obviously it's quite a subjective decision, um, assessing the evidence, assessing the public interest. What is the, what, what's sort of the accountability route on this? What is it to make sure that an Attorney General isn't acting capriciously or unreasonably when they're deciding on whether or not to exercise this prerogative? The prosecution decision is uh, can, can be reviewed by a complainant, he can write in and ask for an independent review of the prosecution decision which has been taken. And clearly, if I had had a hand in uh, in that, it would not be I would not be carrying out that review. That would ordinarily be passed to the Solicitor General to undertake a separate review of the matter. As, as that now, can I just say we 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 have at times disagreed. Yes. I'm thinking of a very recent case where we did disagree. What happens in those instances then if, if you've uh, made a decision it's been reviewed by an independent, say by the Solicitor General, is it still the Attorney General's final decision as to whether or not to accept that review or not? Or is it, if it's been reviewed, that's the decision that stands? How does it work? We've fortunately never reached that decision. There, there are two cases which I have in mind where we formed a different view. One, eventually we negotiate between ourselves, he found in my favour, and the other I found in his favour. But we haven't got to the point where the attorney's decision is final. On a review, we then have to decide together 
what the outcome should be, and we've managed to do that so far. But as a matter of, of law, essentially, it is still the Attorney General's decision that is final. Very interesting point, Mr Hooper. We haven't tested that yet. <laughs> I think we're looking forward to it. How, how would that point be tested, Mr Attorney? That'd be, uh, ooh, good question. Um, I, I don't have the information here, but I do remember in, in, in um, discussion with the attorney in Guernsey that they did have a case where this, the, their attorney general and the solicitor general disagreed and it went to the court to determine. I can, I can think of no other way to, to go. Mr Attorney, you, you helpfully, or your division helpfully, uh, provided information to this committee a little earlier this year on um, trials and the, the outcomes of different trials and so on. And I think really to Mr Hooper's point about how these things are monitored and, and reviewed, how decisions are taken, I think one of the things that came out from the information you provided was that the information at the moment has to be interrogated manually, uh, that the data systems don't exist to be able to track um, prosecutions, uh, why the decision is made to progress or not to progress, then what happens, whether the trial is effective or ineffective, if it cracks, why it cracks. Um, and I wondered whether you could make some comment on uh, what is being done to improve the uh, data collection of all prosecution matters, particularly because I think that was a matter that Wooler raised as well, the importance of, <coughs> of strong data. Well, well, since the Wooler report, um, I have introduced into Chambers uh, a a management system and it's a data management system throughout the whole of chambers not just in the prosecutions area we haven't actually got to the stage where it's perfect but that's developing all the time and I receive um, statistics weekly with reference to all of the prosecution function um, it identifies crack trials it identifies delays it identifies the um, the time that it's taken to respond to advice files uh, and I review that it's every Wednesday morning um, and then I call in the director of prosecutions if appropriate for explanation so we've gone a long way down the line uh, but it's not just prosecution in the whole of chambers we have a very effective management data management system Talking about um, the annual report and this, this idea of publishing data to give people a better in, uh, insight into the work of the Attorney General's Chambers, would it be your intention to, when you've got your, uh, your case management, your data management systems up to, up to a level where they could be uh, made public, is it your intention to make some of the, the data, the high-level data, about sort of uh, successful prosecutions, number of prosecutions, time recording, all that kind of uh, stuff that would be, I think, quite useful to Timbal committees, for example? Yes. Uh, not, not, the, not the details, obviously, about individual prosecutions, but that high-level monitoring data, the management information that really would give us a picture of uh, the efficiency and effectiveness of Chambers as a whole. To answer that, yes. Um, the annual report is a work in progress. I, I hope that if the committee have looked at the previous reports that you'll see, hopefully, an improvement. Uh, it's improving all the time. And of course, that's very much driven by the source data, coming back to you, Madam Chair, uh, and that is improving all the time as well. Just while we're on the annual report, actually, I'm looking at the report for the year ending 31st of March 2019, and it clearly shows that uh, paragraph 2.2 an uptick, I think, in pretty much all categories of general jail trial cases. Um, and, and I wondered whether um, part of what you're going to try and capture in terms of, of your data as you're looking to improve is not just the volume of cases, but to try and offer some analysis of the complexity and therefore the uh, demands that flow from the complexity of, of trials because uh, I think that feeds into other issues. So, for example, if we were to look at the whole management of cases from start to finish, it might go to the duration before any charges are pressed. It might go to the whole duration of the trial, uh, to the issue of cracked trials that we've already touched upon. Um, and another issue, which I don't want to start on immediately without just asking you a bit more about this, but the whole issue of the Public Defenders Unit. Because if you have increased volume of cases and complexity of cases that obviously puts a demand on the prosecution division 
but by analogy it would put demand on any potential public defender unit so I'd just be interested in what you see as the the you know the the hoped for future of data that you will be able to capture and analyze to look at the effectiveness of effectiveness of the prosecution division could i just turn that on its head if i may madam chair and really try and address this where the delays occur at the moment mm -hmm. um and I, I, from chambers point of view the clock starts to tick as soon as the advice file comes in from the um police usually or some other regulatory authority um we've got to get turn that advice file round, and we've set ourselves a, a kpi in that regard that we must do that within 20 14 days right and that, but as you'll appreciate that's only the start of the journey so if we go back with a clear advice as to prosecution after 14 days and quite often it's much sooner than that sometimes later because we may have to go back and call for further evidence um, what we are aware of uh, is that before the advice file comes to us there is a delay uh, and that's with the investigating authority what we're trying to do there is to work closely with the police uh, to improve that part of the process uh, and what I'm doing on uh, what I've decided to do there is actually to put one of my prosecuting lawyers in the police station um, so I'm going to actually put a prosecuting lawyer in there to work full time and I'll possibly put them there for six months or so to, to speed that process up both the prosecution lawyers and the investigating authorities I would acknowledge require further training uh, so that's another aspect which we're dealing with to try and help with the delays which are occurring there. Taking it forward then, um, let's hopefully we, so we can focus on that, whether the management system will improve things there, it's out with my control then, it's, it's with the, the investigating authority, but I can say that certainly I'm aware, and I'm going to focus on the police again, uh, they are rolling out a new, and have rolled out a new system, which we are connected to, so we're closer to them there. So we, there is an opportunity across chambers and I'll use the police as the example, but there are obviously other investigating authorities where we can find possible situations where the management system is showing us a delay that's already building up. So we're focusing on that. The management system will help us there. The work which we're doing at the moment to improve the link with the police um, in the transfer of data is, is, is underway. Um, then we get to the situation where the advice has been given, charges made, we've then got further delays in then getting them on before the court. For summary matters, no difficulty. General jail matters, getting those to trial, um, and I'll be quite frank, even on the record, the delay is unconscionable. Um, we could be looking now at setting a trial and unless they bring in an acting deemster quickly, unless there is a court availability, we could be looking at a year's time before we come to trial uh, and that is not right. So that certainly needs looking at a bit outside my control but we are represented on the criminal um, working group uh, and we make our representations there. Um, and uh, hopefully new systems can be brought in to try and speed up that aspect. But again, out with the management system. I'm sorry to return to this point about uh, efficient data uh, control, but um, to what degree do you see it possible to buy software programs in to help speed things up? And to what extent do you see them having to be written <coughs> specifically for the Isle of Man? Um, our own management tool uh, I, I would describe as bespoke we, we bought the software package but we're tailoring that and ha it has been tailored to meet our requirements the important thing as I'm sure I'm, I'm not a techie but we've got to make sure that what we do can talk to for example the police computer system so all of that's being addressed we, we were certainly part of um, the 
discussions with the constabulary over the system that they brought in, so to make sure that the, the chains, the links are there, which we can all use. Um, do we need anything bespoke? I, th I, th I think the police, if they were here, would say that theirs is bespoke, that they've tailored it to the needs of the Isle of Man, and, and it's something that has happened and will continue to happen. So we're, we're adding on to ours as we identify a gap uh, and we're getting the software writers to actually tailor it. And that, that is not GTS, but we've got to make sure that it works for, G, for GTS. <clears throat> Can I just touch on that 14-day uh, KPI that you mentioned? Yes. Um, I don't recall seeing any uh, indicators actually published in the annual report, so would it be your intention to publish you know, how successful you are with, with your internal indicators as part of that ongoing work? we not say that? Uh, it's not published. It will be published, I can assure you of that. Um, that that's good to hear. The, the other question I was going to ask is that sounded very much like an internal decision that you had made. Sorry, Sorry that sounded very much like an internal decision that yes. you had made yourselves, um, which has me a little bit concerned that we're not looking at the criminal justice strategy in a more joined-up way. So, for my mind, there should be a, a KPI that starts the moment someone is, is arrested by the police through to the charging decision and through to getting into court, through to having the trial, rather than uh, sort of every individual aspect of that having their own little independent uh, KPIs, because it may be that the Attorney General's Chambers is very efficient with their 14 days, but like you've already indicated, there could then be a significant wait before someone gets into court. And unless we're looking at the, the picture as a whole, I think we're still going to be getting uh, not a very joined up image. I'm just wondering if you'd comment on that. Um, entirely agree. Um, certainly to answer your question, it, the 14 days is something that I negotiated, if we put it that way, with my prosecution division. Um, that, that is the rule, but the frequent exception is that we're turning things through around much quicker because there is an urgency. So it's all considered on a case-by-case -case basis by the director in making the allocation of the advice file to one of the law officers in chambers. Um, I've got to have a measure, and certainly from my point of view, where I see it, I want to be satisfied that we are turning them around efficiently. Um, I would be very concerned that if the police were to come to me and say that we had a very, very urgent matter and they sat on this for 14 days, I, that, that hopefully will not happen. But <coughs> we are part of the discussions for the overall criminal justice strategy um, and all of the component parts are considered. I mean, I think it would be fair to say that that group, that board, is conscious of the fact that the process has got too many delays built into it. So they're addressing it from the point of view of the software, they're producing it, addressing it from the point of view of training, which I've mentioned. Um, I've got to do my bit, my prosecutors have got to do their bit, and in turn we've then got to find space for the courts and the deemsters and all the rest of it so we can get these matters to trial. So it would be wrong to give the impression that we're just simply looking at ourselves in isolation. That was John Quinn, QC, Her Majesty's Attorney General on the Isle of Man, speaking to a Tinwald committee made up of Jane Paul Wilson, MLC, plus MHKs, Laurie Hooper and Chris Robertshaw. We'll rejoin that conversation shortly. Pastor Mai, you're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. If you're just joining us, we're eavesdropping on a public evidence session this week in which a Timwald committee looked at the role and function of Her Majesty's Attorney General on the Isle of Man, joined by the man currently in that role, John Quinn QC. So let's rejoin the conversation as the committee's chair, Jane Paul Wilson MLC, asked for an update on something we've heard lots about in the news this year. Perhaps we could, I, I touched on it before, the public defender proposals, perhaps you could at this point give us uh, an update on what progress has been made. Right. Now, um, Madam Chair, what, what I've really got to explain to you is that um, it's wrong uh, to focus simply on a, a public defender scheme. It started its life out of the SAVE uh, subcommittee of the Council of Ministers, focusing on that as a proposition which was put forward. 
Um, but if I could remind you, Madam Chair, of the Treasury Minister's statement made in Jan at the January uh, Timwald sitting, um, where following request from the Legal Aid Committee, the SAVE Subcommittee of Council agreed that the scope of the project should be extended firstly to include civil legal aid uh, and also to extend the review with reference to criminal legal aid. So what the aim of the review at the moment is, is to develop policy options for the sustainable provision of legal aid in the Isle of Man, which maintains or improves access to justice, supports the delivery of quality services and provides value for money. That's the underlying aim. The issue of a possible public defenders scheme is only one aspect of it and clearly that is an option which the review will consider uh, in the context of the work which has been carried out and I now focus on, on criminal legal aid. That is out for public consultation. It was launched on the 23rd of September and closes on the 21st of November. Uh, as I speak, uh, there have been 160 responses. Um, a reminder has just gone out to all stakeholders with reference to the impending closing date. Um, and that is looking at all aspects of criminal legal aid, the Green Form, the Police Station Duty Advocate Scheme, the Court Duty Advocate Scheme, um, and also the full criminal legal aid issue. So whether or not the review might recommend now, because the, broad, the, sc the scope of the review has been broadened, that the public, that the public defenders scheme would be the solution or part of the solution, it, it's, it's early days to say. So that's where we are at the moment. But there will be delays now, because of course the scope uh, has been extended, uh, and following the closure of the criminal aid consultation, criminal legal aid consultation, we then have to embark on the civil legal aid consultation, which will commence the end of this month and will run into December. That's where we are at the moment. Oh, thank you. So, so is it your intention then that you will not move forward with the outputs of the criminal legal aid consultation without also seeing what the outputs of the civil legal aid consultation yes. are? And without wishing to jump ahead, and I understand that you're going to await and analyse the, um, the uh, outputs of the criminal legal aid consultation, but an area that we will move on to, I'm sure, this morning is the multiplicity of hats that uh, go with the Attorney General's role. Yes. And I'd be interested in whether there's been any thought thus far about how a further hat that might be worn in the direction of a public defender scheme would be managed. Uh, we've talked about separating the Attorney General's role from the role of the Director of Prosecutions because of at least the perception of um, the Attorney General's role being in the Council of Ministers and therefore not being seen to be involved in prosecution decisions. How might the Attorney General's role connect at all with a public defender's scheme? Uh, I don't see it connecting in any way, shape or form. There's far too many conflicts there. Um, if the attorney maintains his position as being responsible for all criminal prosecutions, uh, he, he couldn't be prosecutor and defender. So that's where we sit at the moment. And I made that quite clear when accepting the responsibility, we call it that, to undertake this review. Thank you. Can I ask um, why it is that the Attorney General's Chambers is uh, leading on the review? You already touched on the Attorney General wears many hats, but legal aid isn't one of them. The statutory duty to determine legal aid policy sits with the Legal Aid Committee. Yeah. So uh, it seems quite unusual that uh, it was Treasury that asked the Attorney General's Chambers to lead on a review of legal aid, uh, when actually that function is the statutory duty and responsibility of another organisation entirely. Right. Um, Madam Chair, in a sense, Mr. Hubie, you've answered the question insofar as I was asked by the Treasury to, to undertake the review, um, uh, being perceived as someone who hopefully would look at this independently. Um, and it is not 
being run by Chambers, it's, it's a, a personal uh, a position which I have to lead the review, and uh, a member from uh, sort of an officer from the Cabinet Office has been uh, appointed into Chambers to, to run the review on my behalf, so it's not a Chambers review. So. Okay, how, how do you see the Legal Aid Committee being involved in this review? Because obviously at the end of the day, they'll be the ones with the statutory duty to uh, accept or reject changes and to lay any regulations that may be needed the, as a result. Uh, the, the Legal Aid Committee are involved in the review. That They're the ones who are working with the officer who's been seconded into chambers to work alongside me. Okay. So they, they meet on a regular basis and they will be attending and have attended all the workshops which have been carried out um, uh, and I, I go along as well to answer any questions that people want to put to me. I think that the question I'm getting at really is when the review's finished, uh, will it be a review that's presented to the Legal Aid Committee for their decision or will it be a review that's presented to Treasury before it goes on to uh, the Legal Aid Committee? I'm just a little bit nervous about the, uh, the accountants controlling the budget and also the end result of policy, that's where I'm coming from. Um, it, it will be the Legal Aid Committee who will have to decide and take forward any proposals. Okay. And I must add, not me. <laughs> That's helpful clarification, actually, because I, I was going to ask you again, it, it's, it's back to this difficulty of conflicts, but in conducting this particular ru uh, review, how have you found squaring the situation of also your position as head of the Manx Bar? Right. Um, th that is a matter which the, the Society did raise with me um, in July of 2018 because they were concerned about comments that I'd made in a Timwell debate on the 19th of June. Um, and uh, in that debate I did make mention of the fact that I was leader of the Manx Bar um, and they raised with me, this is the Society, whether or not the position of Attorney General in overseeing and scoping the work, which is what they say I'm reading their letter there, and any implementation of the Public Defender Scheme uh, would sort of conflict with my position as the head of the Manx Bar, and they asked me to consider whether in the circumstances uh, it might be better to have the President of the Society as the leader of the Manx Bar. Now, um, I, I kind of you wish, Madam Chair, refer you to what I said to Timor Court on the 19th of June 2018, but in summary I made it clear that in accepting um, the invitation, if you call it that, from the Treasury Minister uh, to undertake this review on behalf of Treasury, um, I did so very much having in mind the fact that I was the leader of the Max Bar. Uh, that I didn't see any conflict because I wanted to ensure that review clearly took into account appropriately the interests of the bar uh, as well as the interests of Treasury, if you put it that way, in the context of uh, reviewing this matter with the Legal Aid Committee um, so as to ensure that there was no impact uh, on the interest, the public interest. Um, as far as the, the, the issue of access to legal aid was concerned. Now, uh, do you want me to read what I've said or, or will you just simply make reference to that? It, it does set the position out very, very clearly. Um, I'm not going to say I accepted the role, uh, but I did accept the role in the knowledge that the society may take issue, but I believe then and I believe now that um, it was, and I can act in the, the interest of the society to make sure that their views are appropriately taken into account. And that's what I have made clear to them, and that's what I will do. So, um, as far as the leader of Manx Bar is concerned, um, what I've said to them, and I wrote to them in response, to which they haven't responded, it, it is simply a convention. Uh, the fact that I'm leader of the Manx Bar is by convention. It gives me no powers, no duties, no responsibilities. Um, but I must say, in our small place here, it is useful. Uh, I am approached by members of the society, um, and I would say more with personal type issues that they perhaps don't want to take to the society as yet. And I have in mind a particular situation 
which is live at the moment, were consulted by a member of the Law Society. I, I sent them hot foot to the Society um, to, to make a, a formal complaint. So uh, there is a role there, uh, being able to step back and be independent of the Society itself. So, um, but whether or not the convention needs to be changed, what I did point out to them when, when inviting them, that that's really a matter not for the society but for government to consider because, and I, and I just read this, um, what the Chief Minister said in debate on the 15th of January 2013 was, by convention, in common law jurisdictions, the Attorney General is the leader of the relevant local bar. That is the case here. If the convention is to change, that ought to be done after proper discussion with all parties who have a legitimate interest in relation to that point. So, whether he's right or wrong, that, that's what the Chief Minister said, but certainly it is a matter of convention. And um, I, I do treat it seriously um, as being an opportunity for members of the bar to, to come to me out with the society if they consider it appropriate. And I'm there to help them. So. Thank you. Just, just one very quick point on that. You say that it's by convention, there's no rights, responsibilities, powers associated with it. And it seems like from what you've just said that it, primarily it's the members of the bar that benefit from having that independent perspective. Um, so when you talk about stakeholders there, are, I suspect you're probably referring to the members of the bar. If they generally want to change the situation, it should be up to them to to decide that. The question I've got for you is in the job description for the Attorney General's role, actually there's no mention of the, the role as head of the Manx Bar. No, it's titular. Right. Yes. Okay, perhaps if we could um, move on now to look at your role as a member of Tinwald. Um, and I suppose to begin with, what what is your view on how useful it is for the Attorney General to be a member of Tinwald? Um, right. I, I've got to make the point that clearly that, that's a matter for Timwald as to whether I, I sit there or not. Um, do I find some value? Um, yes. You might be surprised to hear. Um, <laughs> um, I think, yes, I, th I think I will say this. Um, I think changes could be made, actually. Um, if Tim will consider that it is of value to them to have the Attorney General as a member, uh, and we'll come back to that in a moment, what, what follows from that. Um, back to what I said with reference to change, moving with the times, um, the mere fact that the Attorney is a member doesn't necessarily mean he's got to attend. And I think that's my view. Uh, and I see Mr. Phillips looking at me here. <laughs> why, why should he get away with it? <laughs> um, technology is such that um, the attorney could be required to attend, could be required to attend throughout a Timwell sitting, um, or alternatively, on demand. Uh, and um, I, I think that is something that could be considered by Timwell. So whether or not it is the attorney's attendance that required or his availability during a Timwald sitting. So that, that's, I don't know if I've expressed that very well, but um, it could be, and I, and I don't say this that clearly, he's got to be available to answer questions if he's there as a member. So it could be that the solution, if we call it that, was that he attends question time or when questions being asked. Uh, but, but apart from that, with reference to the agenda, members would have the right, perhaps through Mr. President, to require that the attorney attends for a specific item. Now, that's not just him because I, I don't find any value in sitting there, because I'll be quite frank, I do. Because if nothing else, it helps me with an understanding of situations which might then help me in the context of legal advice, which I'm then asked to give at another time. So it's, it's not a wasted exercise, but I could, as usefully, I suppose, listen to the live Tim World debate to, to listen to what's being said. So there is a value. Um, with the advent 
Um, thankfully, of having a legally qualified clerk um, and deputy clerk, um, there's very few occasions where the attorney is required, and I don't think necessarily perhaps the convention's changing, to advise the, the, the Mr. Speaker or alternatively the President or on procedural matters. There's just simply any legal aspects that may crop up, where, which could be, I'm not saying necessarily it should be, ref referred to the attorney. I don't know if that helps, but um, that, that's my sense of it. Um, there, there's a value, but it's more for Tim Walls to decide whether it's a value that they, they want to maintain. Perhaps if I could ask further about the value, because having sat in various Tinwald sittings now and heard an occasional request for legal advice. Very occasional. A very occasional request for legal advice. I'd just be interested in your view about how useful you think that is to be asked to give legal advice in the moment and the realities of being able to give uh, full legal advice on a question in the moment or whether you think there are alternative ways to provide advice if it is asked for. It, Madam Chair, uh, and thank you for that, it is clearly uh, very, very difficult to provide legal advice in the moment. Um, and um, I often think to myself, of somebody asking me what the legal definition of a reasonable was, and apart from glibly saying, look at the dictionary, which I didn't say, I should say, um, <laughs> what, what am I supposed to do? I do not have in my mind all of the various cases uh, where the courts have made an attempt to, to help people with the definition of the word reasonable. So. Um, what is clearly of advantage is, and it, it does happen, where members, and I will say, will have the courtesy of telling me in advance the question that they want to pose, which gives me the opportunity to give a considered response. But you are very right, Madam Chair, that to give advice off the hoof is very, very difficult. I'd like to ask a little bit about the, the context of your role as a member of Timwald. So, reading through the job description, uh, it's very clear that you're a Crown appointee, the Attorney General Act as legal advisor first to the Lieutenant Governor, then to the Council of Ministers and departments and statutory boards that form the Isle of Man government. Um, there's no actual reference in there to providing advice to Timwald or Timwald members. The only reference is simply that you must attend Timwald. And that is the only reference in the job description. So um, when you're sitting, when the Attorney General is sitting there as a member of Timwald, <coughs> his obligation is still to provide advice to the Lieutenant Governor, to the Council of Ministers, not actually to Timwald. Is my understanding of that correct? Um, I, well, my, my view is I'm available to advise the member of Timwald. Um, I'm just trying to quickly... But you're clearly right with reference to the job description. It doesn't mention that. Um. The reason I'm asking is because this speaks slightly to the, the conflict risk here, is that if, if you have already provided advice to a government department about an issue, obviously then the Attorney General's chambers would find it difficult to provide advice on the same issue to a, a member of Timwald. And if the Attorney General is, is sat in that Timwald chamber, the advice that will be provided will be essentially the advice that's already been provided to government. It's unlikely that you'd be able to provide a, a truly independent view if you if you were the individual that had already provided that government advice. That, that, that sort of goes to the issue of you know, what, what, what are chambers, or alternatively, what, what is the attorney being asked to, to advise mm. on? If the question is an advice on the law, there ought not to be a conflict. It's as simple as that, because the law is the law. But you, you've already said that there's been occasions where, and you found the process healthy mm -hmm. uh, and right, that yourself and the Solicitor General have differed on something. Yes. Um, on one occasion, y y your view uh, achieved, as it were, the agreed way going forward, and on the other occasion it, were, it was the Solicitor General. So that argues that there can be interpretations. Uh, would you, for example, consider it... I don't know, just a thought that the Solicitor General would sit in Timwald as opposed to yourself. Right. Ms. Um, Robshaw, the, the example I gave where we disagreed was not on the law, it was on a prosecution decision. 
where we were looking, I mean the law was there, settled, we, we knew what the offence was, we looked at the evidence with reference to the decisions we made and we both then separately considered the public interest. Right. Um, so the law was settled, uh, and this was the point I'm making through you, Madam Chair, to Mr Hooper, the, the advice which is given or comes out of chambers with reference to what the law is on a specific matter ought to be consistent. I think the reality, though, is this is exactly why we have courts, because very often the law is open to interpretation, especially in the Court of Timor, where we are in the business of writing new laws yes. quite often. And so I think to say that uh, the instances of an interpretation of a point of law will always be consistent, every lawyer on the planet will always agree with the same interpretation of that law, I think is possibly not very true. Well, the, I haven't found a situation in my experience so far where we have not been able to settle chambers or the attorneys or the Solicitor General's view of the law. Right. I am aware, it would be naive for me to say otherwise, where law officers have taken a different view um, and that's been brought to my attention uh, and we've looked at it and we, uh, together, representing the chambers' view, if we call it that, uh, have then settled the issue. That's clearly going to be, uh, that's going to arrive because, as you quite rightly say, lawyers take a different view. But there has got to be, in my role, providing a shared legal service, government's position on the law. And that will be the advice. Be it yeah, and, that, that, and that's kind of the, the point that I'm trying to get at here, is that it is your job to provide government's position on the law as opposed to yeah, but an it independent position. To the advice which is then given to an individual Timor member. That was John Quinn, QC, Her Majesty's Attorney General, speaking to a Timwell committee made up of Jane Paul Wilson, MLC, plus MHK's Laurie Hooper and Chris Robertshaw, all about the role Mr Quinn currently occupies, Her Majesty's Attorney General on the Isle of Man. If you want to listen to that oral evidence session in full, you can head to the Listen Again function on the Tinwald website. Thanks for listening. Take care.